Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm very pleased to be with you today, and I'm really impressed at the number of people you've got on your Zoom session. So let's uh, let's talk about the God of the Bible and the God of the philosophers. It's common among contemporary theologians and philosophers to suppose that the God of the Bible is radically different from the God of the philosophers. The God of the philosophers is generally understood to be the God of classical theism, the God of Aquinas, for example. And some contemporary thinkers suppose that there is an inconsistency between the description of God given by the Bible and the characterization of God upheld by classical theism. They suppose that the biblical portrayal is greatly preferable to the account of God accepted by classical theism. Now, to see the apparent inconsistency, take first the presentation of God in the Old Testament and consider, for example, the Bible story of Jonah. God comes to talk to Jonah, and Jonah knows God and recognizes God's voice right away in the story. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and warn the people that their city will be destroyed in 40 days. Jonah not only understands what God is saying to him, he understands that it's God who's saying it. Only Jonah doesn't want to do what God is asking him to do, and so he reacts to God's speech by taking ship to a far country. Once Jonah is on board ship, God responds to Jonah's attempt to run away by making a violent storm that imperils everyone on the ship. When the sailors cast lots to see whose fault it is that there's a storm, God somehow brings it about that the lots come out to indicate Jonah. And when Jonah's urging, the sailors throw Jonah overboard in consequence. God responds to their action by calming the sea for them. As Jonah begins to drown, he prays to God for help. In response, God prepares a rescue for Jonah in the form of a large sea beast who saves Jonah by swallowing him whole. Inside the beast, Jonah finally prays to God a prayer accepting the task that God originally set him. Because of this prayer of Jonah's, God speaks to the beast who hears and obeys God's voice and spits Jonah out on shore. Then Jonah does, in fact, go to the people of Nineveh to give them God's message that their city will be destroyed in 40 days. The result of Jonah's prophesying God's plan for the city's imminent destruction is that the whole Nineveh people repent in dust and ashes. Because they do, God responds to their repentance by stopping the destruction of the city which he had told Jonah to announce. And this is not yet the end of the story. When Jonah is filled with anger at God's failure to follow through on the message of destruction that God told Jonah to announce to Nineveh, God teaches Jonah a lesson about mercy. God makes a fast-growing plant appear by Jonah and then quickly die. 
when Jonah laments the death of the plant, then in interactive conversation with Jonah, God uses the example of the plant to try to get Jonah to understand God's actions toward Nineveh. As you can see from this story, the God of the Hebrew Bible is so present to human beings that they know God and relate to God in highly personal ways. For his part, God converses with people. God responds to their needs and their prayers. God apparently changes his mind about what he's told them. He issues prophecies about them that he then seems to decide not to fulfill. And in general, he reacts with individual human persons in close and personal ways. You might say that the God portrayed in the Bible, in this story in particular, is very human. When Genesis says that human beings are made in the image of God, the stories of God in the Hebrew Bible bear out that claim. As the story of Jonah illustrates, the humanity of human persons has its correlative image in the responsive and personally present God of the Hebrew Bible. There is a rich anthropomorphism in these stories that the stories themselves underscore and approve. By contrast, the God of classical theism, the God Aquinas is a proponent of, that God seems unresponsive, unengaged, and entirely inhuman. That's because on classical theism, as it is often interpreted, God is immutable and eternal, the void of all potentiality, incapable of any passivity, and inaccessible to human knowledge. So described, the God of classical theism seems very different from the God of the Bible. In this lecture, I want to try to show you that the God of classical theism actually is the engaged, personally present, responsive God of the Bible. I'm going to focus on just one proponent of classical theism, namely Aquinas, because Aquinas' work contains the representative classical theism that I know best. I'll show you that for Aquinas, who is the most frequently cited proponent of classical theism, an immutable and eternal God is most certainly the God of the Bible, knowable, accessible, interactive with human beings, and responsive to them. As I'll argue, the sense that the God of classical theism can't be the God of the Bible is based on a mistaken understanding of the divine attributes at the heart of classical theism, at least in Aquinas's version of it. We can start with God's immutability. The doctrine of God's immutability says that it's not possible for God to change, but this claim seems to be pernicious to religious life. The claim that God is immutable seems to imply that God can't be responsive to human beings since nothing that a human person does or says could affect a change in an immutable God. So it seems that an immutable God couldn't answer prayer as Jonah's God does because, it seems, God's decisions cannot be altered by human prayer. And then there's the doctrine of eternity. 
The claim that God is eternal seems to imply that God cannot engage in interaction with human beings. An eternal God could produce timeless decrees, you might think, but you might think such a God couldn't answer Jonah after Jonah had prayed to God. And in general, you might think that such a God couldn't be personally engaged in conversation with a human person as God is with Jonah in the story. Now, eternity, in fact, implies immutability. So I'm going to first concentrate on eternity and then say something more briefly about immutability. Once we understand how eternity works, we are going to be in a much better position to resolve these puzzles. Here's some artist's idea of Boethius. Boethius was born into a patrician family in Rome sometime around 480 AD. And his most famous work, The Consolation of Philosophy, was written in highly adverse circumstances, from prison, in fact. But Boethius also wrote many other works of philosophy and theology, too. Until the mid-12th century, the medievals knew as much as they did of ancient philosophy, largely because of Boethius's own work. His commentaries, his treatises were used very widely and served to establish a basic Latin philosophical vocabulary. So his work, you might say, for these early Christians, these medieval Christians, his work was an authority second only to the authority of Augustine among the Latin-speaking philosophers. Now, Boethius gives uh, a lot of attention to the doctrine of eternity, and this is what he says about eternity in his great work, The Consolation of Philosophy. He says this. He says that God is eternal is the common judgment of all who live by reason. Let us therefore consider what eternity is, for this makes plain to us both the divine nature and the divine knowledge. Eternity is the complete possession all at once of illimitable life. And I put the Latin in there, tota simul, so you can notice that's the Latin words for all at once, and they'll show up again a little bit later as we go on. Eternity is the complete possession all at once, tota simul, of illimitable life. This becomes clearer by comparison with temporal things, Boethius says. For whatever lives in time proceeds as something present from the future into the past, and there is nothing placed in time that can embrace the whole extent of its life all at once, equally. Indeed, on the contrary, anything placed in time doesn't yet grasp tomorrow, but yesterday it's already lost. And even in the life of today, you live no more fully than in a mobile, transitory moment. Therefore, whatever includes and possesses the whole fullness of its illimitable life at once, totosimul, and is such that nothing future is absent from it and nothing past has flowed away, this is rightly judged to be eternal. And of this, it is necessary both that being in full possession of itself it be always present to itself, and also that it have the infinity of mobile time present to it. 
So here is Boethius's definition of eternity. If we glean it from the little bit of text I just read to you, here is the definition. Eternity is the complete possession all at once of illimitable life, that is, of life without limits. Aquinas adopts this Boethian definition of eternity. In his great work, Summa Contra Gentiles, Aquinas says, God is not measured by time, nor can any succession be found in his being. Rather, he has his being all at once, toda simul. And that's what the formula of eternity consists in, the complete possession all at once of illimitable life. And divine authority bears witness to this truth. First, the psalm says, Thou, Lord, endurest throughout eternity. And in another place, Aquinas says, It belongs to God to know future things, to cognize future things as present, with certainty, as Boethius says, because God's gaze is measured by eternity, which is all at once, totem symbol. Now, there are four elements in Boethius's definition of eternity that need to be emphasized. It's clear, first of all, that on Boethius's definition, anything that is eternal has life. And the second, and equally explicit element in the definition, is the lack of limits. The life of an eternal being can't be limited in any way. There can't be a beginning to it. There can't be an end to it. It's unending in either direction, you might say. The natural understanding of such a claim that God has illimitable life is that God's existence is infinite in duration, without beginning, without end. In this sense of eternal, you might want to notice, it's not correct to talk about eternal truths. That's because the eternal, in the phrase eternal truths, means only what is timeless. But there's more to eternity than mere timelessness. So we can understand Boethius's definition of eternity to mean that the life of an eternal entity is characterized by beginningless, durationless, sorry, beginningless, endless, infinite, non-temporal duration. That's hard to understand, but we're going to work at it. The concept of duration that emerges from this definition of Boethius's is the element of Boethius's definition that I want to emphasize next. Its importance is highlighted by the element in Boethius's definition that says the complete possession all at once. As Boethius's explanation of the definition of eternity makes clear, Boethius conceives of an eternal entity as timeless, and he thinks of its timelessness as conveyed by just this phrase, the complete possession all at once. What Boethius says in the passage that I quoted to you a few minutes earlier shows that something like the following line of thought leads to his use of these words. A living temporal entity like you 
may be said to possess a life. But since the events constituting the life of any temporal entity occur sequentially, some later than others, a temporal entity can't be said to possess its life all at once. And since everything in the life of a temporal entity that's not present is either past and so no longer in the possession of the, the temporal entity, or else it's future, and so not yet in the possession of the temporal entity, the temporal entity can't be said to have the complete possession of its life all at once. So whatever has the po complete possession of its life all at once can't be in time. The life that is the mode of an eternal entity's existence is thus characterized not only by illimitable duration, but also by atemporality. In this sense of eternal, it's not correct to talk of eternal life for human beings. Such life for human beings is more correctly called everlasting than called eternal. Now, it's important to highlight that none of the medievals who accepted the doctrine of God's eternity, none of the medievals who thought of eternity as a real atemporal mode of existence, meant to deny the reality of time. None of them meant to suggest that temporal experiences are illusory. No, rather, in introducing the concept of eternity, Boethius and those who came after him were proposing two separate modes of real existence. Eternity is a mode of existence that's neither reducible to time nor incompatible with the reality of time. And here it's helpful to stop to think a minute about time. Philosophers generally suppose that there are two series which together characterize time. There's what philosophers call the A series, and then there's what philosophers call the B series. The A series is past, present, and future. The B series is earlier than, simultaneous with, later than. These two series can be related to each other in different ways. For example, Christ's birth is earlier than Christ's crucifixion. Christ's crucifixion is simultaneous with his mother's presence to him at the crucifixion. And Christ's death is later than his crucifixion. But all these events are in the past. What's present is Christ being in heaven. What's future is Christ returning to earth. And in that future time of Christ's return to earth, some events will be earlier than others, some will be simultaneous with others, some will be later than others, but all those events will be future with respect to us now. So everything in time can be characterized by one or another of these series, the A series or the B series, but nothing eternal and nothing outside of time can be characterized by either series. So temporal events are ordered in terms of the A series, past, present, and future, and the B series, earlier than, simultaneous with, later than. Because an eternal God can't be characterized by succession, nothing in God's life can be ordered in either of those series. Moreover, no temporal entity or event can be past 
or future with respect to God's life. No temporal entity can be later than or earlier than the whole life of an eternal God, because otherwise God would himself be part of a temporal series. So here's the lesson of this bit of philosophy. Everything in eternity is present. Everything in eternity is now, but with the now of eternity, not the now of time. And everything in eternity is simultaneous with all of time. Nothing in God's life can be past or future with respect to anything else, either in God's life or in time. And similarly, nothing in God's life can be earlier than or later than anything else either. So God's eternity is not just timelessness. Rather, eternity is a mode of existence characterized both by the absence of succession and also by limitless duration. God's life consists in the duration of a present, a great eternal present, that's not limited by either future or past. The concept of eternity as Aquinas, for example, accepts it is thus the concept of a life with infinite atemporal duration. Because an eternal entity is atemporal, there's no past or future or earlier or later than within its life, and no temporal entity or event is earlier or later than anything in its life or past or future with respect to the whole life of God, because otherwise we would have God in time again. So the way to think about it is like this. The implication of all four parts of Boethius's definition of God's eternity is this. Since the mode of existence of an eternal God is characterized by the kind of presentness of eternity, the relation between an eternal God and anything in time has to be one of simultaneity. Now, simultaneity, of course, is generally taken to be existence at one and the same time. But to attribute to an eternal entity simultaneity with anything, we need a coherent characterization of simultaneity that doesn't make it altogether temporal. For Aquinas's purposes, what's needed as regards species of simultaneity is a simultaneity relationship between two relata one of which is eternal and one of which is temporal. It has to be possible to characterize such a relationship coherently if Aquinas is going to be able to maintain that there are connections between an eternal God and a temporal being. So an eternal entity can't be earlier or later or past or future with respect to any eternal entity, but it can be simultaneous with it. And we can call this funny simultaneity relation, ET simultaneity, for simultaneity between what is eternal and what is temporal. Every moment of time, as that moment is now in time, is ET simultaneous with the whole life of eternal God. Or to put the same point the other way around, the whole of eternity, all of God's eternal life, is ET simultaneous with each temporal event, each temporal moment, 
as that event or that moment is actually occurring in the temporal now. So it might be helpful here to have a little picture. A rough image might make the point more intuitively available. So there's philosophical problems with my little picture, but it is helpful, I think, nonetheless. Imagine that there's two parallel horizontal lines. The upper one represents uh, the upper one represents time, and the lower one, well, let's do it the other way around. The upper one represents time, and the lower one represents uh, the presentness of uh, God's eternity. Well, with respect to things in time, the temporal present is represented by a dot of light that moves along the line. That dot lights up the present as it's present in time. But the temporal present is represented by being lit up all at once. All of eternity is present at once. And for any temporal present, with respect to something in that temporal present, the whole line of eternity will be present at once also. So for things in time, only one point on the line of time is ever yellow at once, where yellow indicates the present. But for God in the eternal now, the entire timeline is yellow because he is simultaneous, et simultaneous, with every moment in time as that moment is present. This is difficult to get your mind around. So I want to tell you a story introduced by Edwin Abbott. He was an English schoolmaster and theologian, and his most famous work now is his little story, Flatland. In his story, Flatland, well, let me tell you first why I think he wrote Flatland. He thought we have a real hard time grasping the notion of something that's metaphysically greater than we are, like God. It's not so hard for us to understand something metaphysically littler than we are. And if we think our way down the ladder of being, <clears throat> it will help us understand how to think our way up the ladder of being to God's greater metaphysical existence. So here's how his story Flatland goes. Flatland is a little two-dimensional world. And in that world, there are squares, two-dimensional squares, and they're sentient. They're intelligent creatures. They can have conversations. They have families. They have lives. And in Abbott's story, one of these sentient squares, we'll call him Max, comes into conversation with a three-dimensional creature. We'll call this three-dimensional creature Tom. And Tom has a terrible time explaining his three-dimensional world to his new friend, Max, who's two-dimensional. So imagine Flatland, and here's a little, here's a little picture of Flatland. Oh, suppose that this little picture gives us the whole of Flatland. This is all there is to Flatland. And suppose that in the very middle of Flatland, there's an absolute middle, and the people in Flatland call that absolute middle of their word, word here. They call that here. And only one two-dimensional creature 
can be in that here at the same time. So suppose Max is in the two-dimensional here of his world. And Tom wants to talk to him. So Tom says to him, hi, Max. And Max will say to Tom, I hear your voice, but where are you? Then Tom will say to Max, I'm right here. And Max will say to Tom, oh, no, you're not. I'm right here. I know where here is, and I'm in it. Then Tom will try it again. Tom will say, well, um, you're actually right in front of me, Max. And Max will say, no, I'm not. I know who's behind me. It's Larry. It's not you. And then you, Tom might say to Max, well, Max, um, I'm three-dimensional, and you're all in front of me. And then Max will say, wait, you mean you just came into existence and everybody in the whole world is still in front of you? You'll say, no, that's not how it works, Max. See, there's two different kinds of here. There's here in your world, which is little, and there's here in my world, which is big. In your world, you're the only thing that's here, but in my world, you're all here. And then Max will say, I knew it, I knew it, metaphysical confusion, and that's how it will go. Abbott wrote this story to give you some idea of the doctrine of eternity. God's now, like God himself, is metaphysically bigger than anything in the created world. So for us, there is an absolute now, and we're the only ones in it. The past isn't in it. The future isn't in it. But God is metaphysically bigger. And so for God, our entire timeline is within his metaphysical now. It's open to him to reach into it at any point, just as it's open to Tom to reach into any part of Max's two-dimensional world all at once. That's the basic idea. God's now is metaphysically bigger, and our whole smaller temporal now, the all of it, all of it as it scoots along the timeline can fit into God's much bigger now. So God's mode of duration is to our mode of duration in time, something like what a three-dimensional mode of space is to a two-dimensional mode of space. With respect to God in the eternal present, all of time is encompassed within that eternal present because all of time is ET simultaneous with the eternal present of God. Our experience of temporal duration gives us an impression of permanence and persistence in time. But the existence of a typical temporal entity, such as a human being, is spread over years of the past through the present and into the years of the future. But its past is not, its future is not, and the present is really just a durationless instant, a mere point at which the past is divided from the future. That's a radically evanescent kind of existence, and it can't be the foundation of existence. The permanent, persistent, utterly immutable actuality that seems required as the bedrock underlying all our world, all the created world, has to be characterized by what you might think of as genuine duration. 
of which temporal duration is just a kind of image. So what we have in God's duration is duration of the whole life all at once. And that all at once duration has to be a temporal. But it's nonetheless illimitable. Nothing has flowed away from it into the past. Nothing is not yet for it in the future. And God can be ET simultaneous with everything in the temporal world. So here's a way to think about it. This is a picture of my little granddaughter when she was a tiny little thing. She was adorable. She really was. But here's the thing to notice. In the past, she was an adorable little girl like that. In the future, I think she'll be an elegant old lady. But she's 10 years old now. And so these are not parts of her life that I can connect to now. That time when she was an adorable baby is in the past. The time she'll be an elegant old lady is in the future. I get her just a tiny little time slice at a time, you might say. But an eternal God can connect to her whole life all at once. Just as you could be related all at once to everything in Flatland. So the result of God's eternity is that in respect of time, God can be more present with regard to a human person than any contemporary human person could be. As regards my granddaughter, I can be present only one time slice after another to her. But eternal God is present at once to every time of her life, and none of her life is ever absent or unavailable to God as past or as future. So on the logic of the doctrine of eternity, it actually is possible for an eternal God to have the kind of conversation with Jonah represented in the biblical story. In one and the same eternal now, God is E.T. simultaneous with every moment of Jonah's life. In one and the same eternal act of will, God can will to make one speech to Jonah, which Jonah hears at time T1, and another speech to Jonah, which Jonah hears at time T2. God's act of will in the eternal now can be for effects which are at different times in the world of time. Furthermore, it's entirely possible and compatible with the doctrine of eternity, that the speech God wills to introduce into time at T2 is a consequence of what God in the eternal now knows that Jonah says at some time between T1 and T2, because all those times are ET simultaneous with the God's whole life also. So here's the, here's the bottom line. God's eternality does not rule out God's having effects in time or God's responding to things that temporal human beings do. Now, you might object that even if God's eternality doesn't preclude God's responsiveness to human beings, God's immutability certainly does. But that's a mistaken objection. It's true that since change requires time, nothing eternal and therefore outside of time can change. An eternal God is immutable. That's what I said at the beginning. Eternality implies immutability. 
But it doesn't follow that an eternal, immutable God can't alter his plans or be responsive to human beings. And here's why. An eternal, immutable God isn't changeable across times. At each and every time, et simultaneous with the one eternal now, God is one and the same. So an internal, immutable God can't do anything after something happens in time. But an eternal, immutable God can certainly act because of something in time. So, for example, in one and the same eternal now, God can will to introduce into time T1 an announcement to the Ninevites that their city will be destroyed in 40 days. And in the very same eternal now, God can will to introduce into time T2 the retraction of the destruction of Nineveh because the people repented between time T1 and time T2. In making this one complex act of will, God is not changing, but he is responding to what the Ninevites do. Only his responsiveness doesn't require any change. To generalize from the point about Noah then, in one and the same eternal act of will, without any change, an eternal immutable God can will to introduce different effects into different points in time because of what human beings do at other points in time. Augustine, I mean, Aquinas is one of the main proponents of classical theism, but because he understands eternity and immutability in the ways I have just laid out for you, Aquinas also accepts the picture of God in the Bible. In fact, for Aquinas, the Holy Spirit so fills a human person with a sense of the love of God and God's presence to him that joy is one of the principal effects of the Holy Spirit. Here's an example of what Aquinas says about God's relation to human beings. Aquinas says, in the first place, it's proper to friendship, to converse with one's friends. It's also a property of friendship that one take delight in a friend's presence, that one rejoice in a friend's words and deeds. And it's especially in our sorrows that we hasten to our friends for consolation. Since the Holy Spirit makes us God's friends and makes God dwell in us, and makes us dwell in God, it follows that through the Holy Spirit, we have joy in God. And in another place, Aquinas says, when Paul says, the Lord is near, Paul points out the cause of joy, because a person rejoices at the nearness of his friend. So here's the end of the story. Here's the conclusion. Um, for Aquinas, who's one of the main proponents of classical theism, the God of classical theism is the God of the Bible. Classical theism has been widely interpreted as making God totally unlike the God of the Bible. But in the Christian tradition, Aquinas is universally recognized as one of the main proponents of classical theism. And certainly he's committed to the view that God is eternal and immutable. But as Aquinas understands God's immutability and God's eternity, they are entirely compatible with the actions of God as described in the book of Jonah. So there's nothing in the logic of the attributes of eternity or immutability as Aquinas understands them that rules out God's acting in time 
responding to human beings, conversing with human beings, and even altering his announced plans for them because of what they do. As Aquinas understands these divine attributes, the God of the story of Jonah could certainly also be eternal and immutable. And so for that exemplary and influential proponent of classical theism, the God of the philosophers and the God of the Bible are the same God, not because the biblical God is after all a frozen and unresponsive deity, but because the God of classical theism is truly the engaged, responsive, intimately present God of the biblical stories. And with that, I am done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Stump, for that lovely lecture. I have this fond memory that when I was a third-year philosophy student in my undergrad, I was taking a course in postmodern philosophy, and I was faced with process theology and their critique of the God of classical theism being frozen. And I remember my research led me to your book on, on this lecture, and I, I used your uh, book to write a paper to respond to that, and I got an A-plus for that assignment. So I wanted <laughs> to thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you got an A-plus. <laughs> yes, and uh, now we have some time for question. So keep in mind that we'll have about uh, 20 minutes for uh, Q&A. So I would like to uh, invite everyone. So if you have a question, feel free to type it into the chat box, and then uh, I will call upon your uh, name to uh, read your question. And I would like to see the faces of the people who asked the question. Yes, so please uh, open up your camera. Uh, Dr. Morty and I often say, uh, when the when the Zoom black boxes, we, we, we are looking at uh, liveness, windowless moments. <laughs> <laughs> right. right, exactly. So maybe when everyone else is typing and thinking about their question, maybe I can uh, ask a question first. <laughs> so uh, uh, Dr. Stump, I, uh, again, thank you for that wonderful lecture. So um, uh, I was always thinking, you know, following Aquinas' Aristotelian philosophy, when we describe the notion or the change of temporal things, we like to think about via the actualization of potentiality, but when we're thinking about God as pure actuality, when he is you know, acting, for lack of a better word, in his eternal present, um, what, will be, what would be your preferred approach or language to, to describe the action of, of pure actuality, as it were? Well, um, I would use exactly the same language that I would use to describe whatever you're doing. God wills, God speaks, God thinks. It's just that you have to remember when you talk that way that what you are talking about is something that is doing all these things all at once, totem simul, because there's no succession in the life of God. But the best way to understand what God is like, what God does, is to remember the biblical claim that human beings are made in the image of God. This is a claim that Judaism and Christianity both take very seriously. And you have to understand that uh, if X is an image of Y, then X has to resemble Y. And if X resembles Y, then Y resembles X also. That's what resemblance is. 
So if human beings are in the image of God, they have to be like God in some respect. But then in some respect, God has to be like them too. And the moral of that story is this. Anthropomorphism is bad if it's stupid. But philosophically sophisticated anthropomorphism is exactly what you have to have if your religion claims that you are made in the image of God. So you speak and God speaks. You take time and God doesn't. But still, he speaks. And that's, I think, the best way to think about it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Stong. I absolutely love that question. Now I can do my next assignment. <laughs> and... I got a question. Oh, Vince, you have a question. Go ahead. If I may, thank you, uh, Dr. Stump. Um, I got a question for the skeptic. Okay. Um, not to say that this is my perspective. Maybe at times it is. I don't know. Um, let's say someone's like going through a lot of suffering right now. And they're like, so God's eternal. He knew that this was all going to happen. I'm told that he loves me but I don't buy it. How can, how can this eternal loving God allow all of this? What good is that? Well, um, I know it's, it's a big one. You know, I've, I've, I've listened to some of your stuff on suffering and I pre appreciate what you thought. No, 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 I don't want to derail it, but. No, no, no. It is of course a very important question. And I'm glad you raised it. It's a good question. So what I would say is, to answer that question, we have to be able to see that your suffering is defeated. Now, uh, that notion of defeat is a technical philosopher's term. And um, I can't see your face anymore. Say something. Then you'll come back on my screen. Hello. There we go. Okay. Now you're there still. Okay. So, so defeat is a technical philosopher's term. For your suffering to be defeated... Here are the conditions that have to be met. There has to be a benefit for the suffering. And it has to go primarily to you. <laughs> it has to outweigh your suffering. And it has to be such that you couldn't get it without the suffering. So in order to understand why God allows you to suffer, we have to see if there's a something that defeats your suffering. Now, um, one thing to notice here is that the entire Christian tradition has pointed to something like this. That it's not as if we're here trying to figure it out. We got 2,000 years in which the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition also think they have the answer. They think that this suffering is medicinal for the human post-fall condition. And it's medicinal in this sense that it draws you closer to God. Now, um, you have to think about you have to think about the issue this way. On the Christian tradition, on the Jewish tradition, the greatest good for you is to be united to God forever. The worst thing that can happen to you is not to be united with God for forever. In the Christian tradition, that's um, generally considered to be the condition of hell. But whatever you think that condition is, it's possible for you not to be united to God. That's the idea. So. Um, why why is it that suffering could have a medicinal effect like this? Now, it takes a long time really to answer that question. There's a great deal said about it in the Christian tradition. 
But here's, here's a way to think about it. We do typically like to wall ourselves off from one another in willed loneliness. We are polite. We hide our true thoughts. We hide our true feelings. We hide our true selves from the other guys. And why do we do that? Because we don't trust them. And we're right not to trust them. We're right not to trust them. Now, here's an interesting thing to notice. I used to fly before the pandemic. I used to fly all the time. The minute I got on the plane, I'd pull my book out of my backpack, put my nose down in my book. So whoever was sitting next to me would know, I don't want to talk to you. Okay, not you. But, you know, if the plane were going down, I'd talk to anybody. See what I mean? And now you get a kind of a quick understanding of the way in which suffering can impinge on that willed loneliness of post-fall human beings, driving us not only to be willing to talk to each other in intimate ways, but to be willing to be open to talking to God too. And that's the beginning. So in shorthand, that's the Christian answer that you are asking about. That's how goal. Thank you, Dr. Stump. I appreciate that because often I find the eternity piece can make God seem malicious if he knows. But but anyways, thank you. Thank you, Vince. Thank you for that question. I want to go back to his worry about malice. I want to just say one more thing. Can okay. you go back on the screen? Say something. Sure. And then I'll see. Okay, let's see if I can get yeah. you. There we go. Okay, so I want to tell you just one more thing on that issue of malice and see if this helps you with that too. When my children were very tiny, the medical profession, the pediatricians had a view. I don't know if they still have it, but then they all shared this view. If your child has a high fever, you have to strip your child naked, put him in the bathtub and pour cold water over. This is a, a truly horrible thing to do. So, so my firstborn had a high fever. The pediatrician said, you must, it's imperative for your child's well-being, you must put him in the bathtub, strip him naked, and just pour endless cold water over. Well, you do that to a tiny little child who's already sick and feverish and wishing to be warm and cuddled in your arms. That child is going to scream bloody murder, hold his arms out to you and say, mama, mama. And uh, I said to my husband, I don't care. I'm not doing this. I am not doing this. And you know what? My husband did it. And now what I want you to think about is which of us loved that child more? See what I mean? That's that's the point about malice. Oh, no. I think uh, now I'm suddenly worried. That, you know, well, my wife, Molly, she might have to ask me to do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> they probably don't have that view anymore. It's oh, awful, awful to do anyway. That's, that's good to know. <laughs> and on my... Uh, thank you, Vince. Thank you again for that wonderful question. And on my screen, I have, um, uh, is that Michaela? Michaela, feel free to uh, ask your question. Hi, yes, thank you. Um, thank you, first of all, for the lecture, Dr. Stump. Um, I'm just kind of, I'm new to philosophy as a subject, so I'm just kind of wondering why it seems to be a trend for modern philosophers to reject the notion of God. And I, I just want to, um, I want to know what the argument is there. Well, you're making a sociological claim that that's what most philosophers do. But this sociological claim is based on no evidence, as far as I can see, and is also false. And here's my evidence for saying so. 
The American Philosophical Association is in the U.S. the main professional organization for all academic philosophers. And there is a subgroup, the Society of Christian Philosophers, which is within the American Philosophical Association. It's the largest subgroup within the American Philosophical Association. And it's got the largest number of past presidents of the American Philosophical Association among its members. So insofar as that's some kind of sociological data, it suggests not only that very many contemporary philosophers are Christians, but also that the smartest among them are the Christians. And that's good to know, too. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Michaela. Thank you, Dr. Stump. So uh, on my screen, I have Colin. Colin, feel free to ask your question. Hi, Dr. Stump. Um, thank you so much for the lecture. Um, my question is, um, as far as impassibility and immutability, how does God's um, kenotic suffering, especially his suffering in Christ, um, relate to his impassibility and especially his immutability? That's a lovely question. And um, it would help to have a blackboard here to show you. But without one, we'll just manage with words. So um, you have to remember. There is a whiteboard function, Dr. Stump. Yeah, but do I know how to work it? That's, that's the question. I was sure there would be some sort of system, but I don't know how to work it. So we're going to just manage without it. And I will give some thought to whether I want to learn it. But anyway, for right now, here's the Chalcedonian formula for the incarnate Christ. One person with two natures, not one big mingled nature, but two unconfused, unmingled nature united in one person. And what that means is that uh, Christ is both immutable and eternal in his divine nature, and also mutable and temporal in his human nature. He, he has two natures, and he can operate in either one of them, or he can actually operate in both of them. So um, here's a really interesting question. Does God, can God suffer? And the answer is, well, of course not, because he's immutable, he's eternal, and so on. But that's true only with regard to the divine nature. Christ is incarnate deity. And so in the human nature, which Christ has, Christ can suffer. And therefore, it is also true to say that God can suffer. It's true to say God suffers. It's true to say God dies in the human nature, which God assumes in the incarnate Christ. And in fact, on much of Christian doctrine, the idea was God assumed human nature so he could suffer and so he could die. That's why. And that's why the doctrine of God's immutability and eternity are completely compatible with God's emptying God's self and with God's suffering and dying like that. Uh, thank you. Um, if I may, um, how does the... Uh instruction from Paul to not grieve the spirit um, potentially fit into that since there's not the um, the one person with two distinct natures. Um, is that merely a metaphor on Paul's part 
to refer to obedience, or how would you interpret that statement there? I'm going to answer what I think you're asking, but I may have moved too hastily. You may have to ask this question over again, because I thought I knew right away what you were asking. And maybe because I was so sure of it, I'm going to get it wrong. So um, Isaiah says, God's arm is not shortened that it cannot save. Now, nobody supposes God's got an arm, right? Um, in the same way, um, scripture says any number of things, you know, about God's hot wrath, for example. But nobody really supposes God's got hot wrath. What God has is God's equivalent of what we've got when we've got hot wrath. So he really cares. He really has strong negative reaction. He's certainly going to get you if he has hot wrath, but what he doesn't have is heat in his chest of a sort you would have if you had hot wrath. He doesn't have a chest, so he doesn't have hot wrathful feelings. Well, in the same way, um, to grieve the Holy Spirit is to produce in the Holy Spirit those things which in the Holy Spirit are to God's nature, what grieving would be to human nature. And that's how you can figure it out. You can do a, a kind of proportion like that. And thank and you so that, much. That's exactly what I was asking. That's okay. great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Good question. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And on my screen, I can see that Cassidy has a hand hand up. So go ahead, Cassidy. Hi. Um, so lately, I've been kind of wondering um, about. Oh, oh I, I've lost audio. Cassidy, you are muted. Oh, sorry. Don't know what happened there. Um, I'll just restart. Um, okay. Lately, I've been wondering um, about God's effect on, on the world. And I've been debating between two, two thought processes where one is God has a direct like control over things that happen in the, in the world, like earthquakes and tragedies, but also beautiful things as well where I wonder if he is directly controlling those things all the time, or if, if he lets the world be as it is and interferes when he sees it fit. And I was just wondering if you had any, any knowledge on the area and could put any insight in towards that. Well, Aquinas and others in the Christian tradition distinguish between God's consequent and God's antecedent will. And you can think about the distinction between antecedent and consequent will like this. So we were sitting at the dining room table with my son and his family. And my little two-year-old grandson was being a real troublemaker. And his poor, his poor mother said to him, Johnny, you hit your sister one more time. You throw your pizza on the floor one more time. And your dinner is over. And you're going to be in your room by himself, by yourself. And he looked his mother in the eye, threw his pizza on the floor, and hit his sister. So his poor mother picked him up, lugged him to his room, shut the door, and then we all sat in front of cold pizza and listened to him scream. Now, now the antecedent will of his mother, the will which was the will she would have had if everything had been up to her, is that we have a lovely dinner together with the two-year-old's favorite dinner, pizza. Given what the two-year-old willed to do, her consequent will was that we enjoy no nice family dinner 
and the little guy screamed alone, hungry in his room. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the distinction between the antecedent and the consequent will. God's antecedent will is what he would have willed if everything had been up to him alone. But given what humans will, he gets his consequent will. Now, um, everything that happens in the world happens because of God's consequent will. If God willed that it didn't happen, it wouldn't happen. That's what it is to be omnipotent. But it doesn't follow that God decided we'd have earthquakes. That doesn't follow. It doesn't. It, it, my grandson's mother didn't decide what we we're going to have as a hungry, screaming two-year-old and stuffed in his room. It's true that she willed that he be hungry and scream by himself in his room, but um, she willed it just because of what he willed. And she didn't arrange life to be that way. She just willed it permissively, given what he willed. See what I mean? And that's the way to think about, um, that's the way to think about evil in the world. So if you if you look at the story of Cain and Abel, you can see the point really clearly. So uh, the two brothers bring offerings. Cain's offering is rejected and he's really angry. And he seems to be primarily angry at his brother whose offering was accepted. So God comes to talk to him. God warns him and so on and so on. But what God doesn't do is protect Abel. He doesn't protect him. If God had come to Abel to talk to Abel instead of coming to Cain to talk to Cain, Abel wouldn't have died. God came to Cain to warn him, evil is at the door in your heart. If God had come to to Abel to say, evil is at the door in the form of your furious brother Cain, then Abel could have run away and been saved. But God didn't, didn't do that. And why? Why didn't God do that? Why did God come to talk to Cain? who's murderous and not to Abel. And the answer is Cain's the one who needs God's attention. Abel, who's righteous, is just fine. The murderer, the murderous guy, he's the one that needs help. And that's the difference also between God's antecedent and consequent will. So everything that happens, happens by God's will, but not by God's antecedent will. That makes lots of sense. Thank you. You're welcome. Good Thank question. you, Cassie. Yeah. Nice. Thank you for that good question. And I think we might have time for um, just one, uh, maybe a couple more questions. And in the chat box, I think uh, the next in line is Elizabeth. So uh, she, uh, I think uh, the question is about uh, immutability and prayer. Um, I think it might be good to revisit this important uh, point of the lecture. So go ahead, Elizabeth. Hi. Hi, Elizabeth here. Uh, and um, yeah, I was just wondering about why God uh, dis, like why God, even though he's immutable, he changes um, based on like human behavior and human prayer. Like if, you know, if we obey him, he, um, I guess, like answers our prayer and, and covers us like with love and we don't, uh, we don't suffer from our consequences uh, when we obey God. But when we don't, then he, I guess, can become angry with us or like as example i would use like the 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 jewish people in the old testament like why why does god change if he is unchangeable well there are two things that seem to me to need correction in what you are saying the first one is 
the issue of change. So God doesn't change. In his big eternal now, he wills that at one time, Jonah hears him telling him to go to Nineveh. And at another time, Jonah hears him talking to Jonah about the plant that died. So here's God's big now. And in that big now, God can reach into any moment of time all at once, just in the way in that two-dimensional world. You could reach into any part of that two-dimensional world at once and it would all be here for you like that. God's now is so big that our whole timeline is now for him. So he can have all these different effects in time without um, himself being at those times or in any time and without changing. So that's the first thing to see. But here's the second thing to see. Um, God's offer of love is always there for everybody. That is, it isn't just there for the obedient. Scripture says God hates nothing that he has made. God loves everything that he has made. And if you look at the people God loves best, they do tend to suffer the most. So um, Christ was crucified. And you know what? All his apostles, with possibly one exception, all of them were martyred. So um, scripture puts it this way, whom God loves, he chastens. And the more he loves you, maybe the more chastening you've got. And the people who were martyred among the apostles gloried in their martyrdom. That's what Paul says. We glory in our tribulations because they unite us to Christ. They make us join Christ in his suffering. And there is something glorious about that. So here's, so here's a way to understand it. The psalmist says to God, I will sing your presence. I will sing your praises in the presence of the angels. Now you can imagine this choir of angels as the psalmist comes up and proposes he's going to sing them a solo. And imagine those angels say to him kindly, well, why don't you just listen to us? How about that? Why would the psalmist dare to sing God's praises in the presence of the angels? And here's why. The angels in heaven don't suffer. They don't suffer. And so their love of God doesn't mirror the magnificent love of God in the passion of Christ. But the song that is the life of a suffering human being does. When a suffering human being sings his song of praise in the presence of the angels, his song, which is his life, mirrors the great love of Christ willing to suffer out of love for human beings. And that song, then, is more glorious than any song the angels sing. And that's a way to think about it. Thank you so much. That makes a lot of sense. Have a great evening. You too. You too. Thank you. Nice question. It was a nice question. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I think we have time for one last question. And since Brian has his hand up, so I'm going to let it go to you, Brian. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the lecture. It was wonderful. I wanted to ask, um, what do you think of Alvin Plantinga, which I know you're familiar with, uh, Alvin Plantinga's uh, argument in God, freedom, and evil, 
where he says that part of what part of what we can explain, uh, sorry, part of the explanation for evil in the world can include even like spirits. <laughs> so somebody asked a question about earthquakes and natural disasters. Uh, and he posits the idea that maybe maybe we have a very modern mindset and we need to be more pre-modern and think about, well, maybe spirits can explain these things. What do you think about that? Well, um, it's not quite exactly what Plantinga said. What Plantinga said was uh, something like this. I'm not saying earthquakes are caused by demons. I'm just saying you could, in theory, extend the free will defense to cover natural evil as well as moral evil. That's a much more limited claim than the one you just attributed to him, see? It's just, he was faced with people who said, well, your free will defense is just for moral evil. It couldn't possibly handle natural evil. To which he said, yeah, it could. Sure, it could. Just have to be some other beings free will and then the free will defense could handle it so all he was doing was saying that the free will defense can't can't be knocked out by this thought about natural evil but he didn't actually ever espouse in his own view for you know that the idea that um natural evil was caused by demons and certainly um what do i want to say um I mean, certainly there's no need to go in that direction. So um, at, at a certain point in my career, I was looking for an example of an evil that had no human evil in the causal chain leading up to it. So I had a, a pure case of natural evil that had no involvement of moral evil. I never could find one. And, and um, I mean, you, you have to remember that even for uh, the worst of natural catastrophes, if human beings banded together and moved people away from earthquake-prone zones, if they pooled their money and supported people who live in areas that are too low-lying and built them beautiful communities in areas that weren't low-lying, I mean, what's bad about earthquakes and floods and things of that sort is not the earthquakes and the floods but the suffering of the people the suffering of the people from these things and um there is this much moral evil in any such case that human beings don't band together and rescue those who might otherwise be subject to these things by getting them out of harm's way so i don't think you need to have any thought about demons in order to handle natural evil so that's what i would say about that case Thank you. You're welcome. Nice question. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.